G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Road Less Travelled Podcast. My name is Nikki Shea, great to have your company, really appreciate the feedback that we've been getting. If you'd like to interact with the show, you can do that via email, fatcat at iinet.net.au, that's fatcat with a ph, and of course you can catch up with all the episodes, previous episodes of the show on our website, fatcatmedia.com.au. There you'll see episode one right through to the current episodes that we have on our Batrog and plenty of information on the website too. If you'd like to become involved with the show, you can drop me a SMS on 042-752-8467. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and of course on YouTube too. We got a lot of fantastic feedback regarding the two episodes that we did on Western Australia, in particular the episode where we went from Geraldton up to Kalbarri. And someone said to me, you didn't really mention much about the HMAS Sydney Memorial at, at Geraldton. And you, I, I made a passing mention of it, but it is one that is very poignant if you do have the opportunity to visit it. Please do, and there's one part of the HMAS Sydney Memorial in Geraldton, and it's the Waiting Woman statue. And um, I don't know what it is, but at the edge of the cliff stands a figure of a woman. At first glance, this will appear almost real, just like another visitor, holding her hat against the sea breeze, her skirt blown back by the prevailing wind. She is anxious, tense, her gaze forever fixed patiently on the horizon, and it only becomes apparent as one waits for her to move that her stillness is unworldly, like the young man she is seeking already in another realm. She is in fact frozen in time and in bronze. She is eternal, all-encompassing, the figure of the waiting woman, grieving for her lost father, maybe husband, brother or son. Through her, we can feel the pain of that loss, the everlasting waiting for those who did and those who still do. She stands here for all who come to this place at Geraldton, still hoping that the ship will be found to close this tragic chapter in Australian history. She is also here for those who will at least find comfort in the existence of this sacred site, this place of contemplation which honours and remembers the great sacrifice of those who gave their lives to make Australia safe and free for the people who live in this country today. This concept was evolved as a fitting expression of all the people involved directly in this terrible tragedy. To portray the men from the ship herself would be very difficult, as any particular scene would really personalise a single group too much at the expense of others. All were equally involved and all suffered a similar fate. However, no matter what role these men played, they all had loved ones, wives, mothers, girlfriends, sisters, daughters, someone to mourn them, a woman somewhere who didn't experience this terrible drama directly, but felt the connection to the eternal pain of loss and emptiness for the long years that have passed. The men of HMAS Sydney will always be remembered by these women and their surviving families. It is to them that this memorial is also dedicated. So that's part of the memorial rather at Geraldton regarding HMAS Sydney. The loss of HMAS Sydney off the coast of Geraldton is Australia's greatest naval tragedy. Its disappearance in 1941 without a trace left a legacy of uncertainty for decades. That was until 2008 when a renewed effort to find the Sydney came to fruition. It confirmed her fate and bringing closure to the mystery. This week we talk about what happened on the final voyage of HMAS Sydney, right here on the Road Less Travelled podcast. 
On the 8th of July 1933, the ship that would become Sydney was laid down as HMS Phaeton in the shipyard of Swan, Hunter and Wiggum Richardson at Wallshead on Tyne in England. The following year she was purchased in build by the Australian Government and renamed Sydney in memory of her namesake and the capital city of New South Wales. She was launched on the 22nd of September 1934 by Mrs Ethel Bruce, the wife of Mr Stanley Bruce MC, the Australian High Commissioner to Great Britain and the former Australian Prime Minister. Sydney was one of three British modified Leander Leander-class light cruisers acquired by the RAN in the years immediately preceding World War II. Her sister ships were Perth and Hobart, and in Australia they were known as Perth-class light cruisers. In January 1935, Commander J.A. Collins RAN arrived at Wallset on Tyne to take up the appointment as executive officer in Sydney. Collins, a gunnery officer, was a graduate of the inaugural entry of the Royal Australian Naval College and although he did not know it at the time, it would be under his leadership that Sydney would later reach the pinnacle of career during the hard-fought Mediterranean campaign of World War II, which was just then four years distant. Sydney was completed on the 24th of September 1935 and following acceptance trials, she commissioned under the command of Captain J.U.P. Fitzgerald R.N. with a steaming party embarked. She then made the short voyage to Portsmouth where the balance of her Australian ship's company was waiting to join her. These men had been standing by in Portsmouth having sailed there in the obsolete light cruiser HMAS Brisbane which was being paid off for disposal. The crew of the Sydney liked what they saw before them. As her longest surviving officer, Lieutenant Commander John Ross was to recall in his memoirs, It was an exciting and proud moment for us as we watched this brand new ship, the last word in cruiser design, come gliding in, her new paintwork shining and her decks snow white in the morning sunlight. HMAS Sydney was undeniably a modern, handsome-looking ship with sleek, business-like lines. With an overall length of 555 feet, a beam of 56 feet 8 inches and a standard displacement of 7,250 tonnes, she was much larger than a predecessor. Her main armament consisted of eight 6-inch Mark 10 guns housed in four twin turrets. Two forward turrets were designated A and B respectively, while the other two turrets were, des- were designated as X and Y. Her second armament comprised four four 4-inch quick-firing Mark V anti-aircraft guns and she was also equipped with eight 21-inch above-water torpedo tubes arranged in quadruple mountings. These mountings, when loaded, accommodated Mark Mark 12 torpedoes, each of which carried a 750-pound warhead. Her close-range weapons, including 12 half-inch Vickers machine guns sighted on three Mark II quadruple mountings. Sydney had a peacetime complement of 510 men that included six members of the Royal Australian Air Force who maintained and operated her amphibian catapult-launched aircraft. She also carried four civilian canteen staff. With her commissioning crew embarked, Sydney spent the next month working up in cold and blustery weather. At the end of that period, Sydney's band led a contingent of men on a march through London at the famous Guildhall. There, the Lord Mayor of London hosted a farewell luncheon for the Australian sailors before they returned by train to Portsmouth to make the preparations for Sydney's voyage to Australia. On the 29th of October, she steamed out of Portsmouth with her crew's spirits very high. 
World events, though, were soon to impact on the newly commissioned warship when Italy invaded Abyssinia. Sanctions were quickly imposed on Italy and Sydney's voyage home was interrupted when she received orders to proceed to Gibraltar to reinforce the Royal Navy's second cruiser squadron. The time spent working with the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean served her well and she continued to work up and hone her warfighting skills. An unfortunate outbreak of rubella amongst her crew, followed by the mumps, added to the crew's frustrations when the ship was placed under a quarantine order which prevented the crew from going ashore until the illness passed. In March 1936, Sydney joined the heavy cruiser HMAS Australia as part of the first cruiser squadron. During the next four months, the two Australian vessels continued to participate in numerous fleet exercises before finally sailing home on the 14th of July. Sydney's first Australian port of call was Fremantle in Western Australia, where she was warmly received by over 800 well-wishers, many of whom had fond memories of her namesake's last visit to Fremantle in May 1927. Stopping for only a day, she was soon steaming eastbound for Melbourne, where she arrived on the 8th of August, and the citizens of Melbourne turned out in droves to see the new light cruiser, and the ship received some 18,000 visitors when she was open for inspection at Princess Pier. On the 11th of August, she made her long-awaited entry through Sydney Heads and into Port Jackson, where her arrival was viewed from the shore by thousands of citizens who turned out to see her. As she slowly made her way through the channel, she was saluted with the sound of ferry whistles as she made her way to a buoy off Garden Island. Once again, the citizens of the city of Sydney had a ship that they could call their own, and Australia's overt adulation for the new cruiser soon became an extension of the affection and the esteem held for HMAS Sydney. On the 9th of October 1937, Captain J.W.A. Waller, Royal Navy, succeeded Captain Fitzgerald as Sydney's new commanding officer. By that time, Commander Collins had also been relieved, having spent almost three years as her executive officer. Between 1937 and the outbreak of war, Sydney was busy exercising, mostly on the Australian station, undertaking the usual round of seasonal training courses. Signs of a forthcoming war were apparent, though, and it was with increasing apprehension that Australians watched Germany's and Italy's threats of peace in Europe steadily materialise. The Munich crisis of 1938 saw the partial mobilisation of Australia's naval forces, however they were later stood down when it appeared that war had been averted. By August 1939, it became apparent that the situation in Europe had again deteriorated, and on the 30th of August, the Commonwealth Government reaffirmed that it would place the ships of the Royal Australian Navy and its personnel at the disposal of the United Kingdom Government in the event of war. It did, however, find it necessary to stipulate that no ships other than HMAS, HMAS Perth should be undertaken from Australian waters without prior concurrence of the Australian Government. When the declaration of war came on the 3rd of September 1939, Sydney had already taken up her war station at Fremantle. There she received a draft and an additional 135 ratings from the Fremantle Division of the Royal Australian Naval Reserve and several additional officers to boost her complement to a war footing of 645 men. The cruiser then commenced a rigorous series of gunnery and torpedo exercises off the WA coast and began patrol and escort duties. On the 16th of November, Captain J.A. Collins returned to Sydney to relieve Captain Waller as her commanding officer. With three years' experience under his belt as Sydney's executive officer, 
Collins' selection as the first Australian officer to command the vessel was seen as a logical choice and one which was popular among many of the cruiser's old hands who were pleased to see him return. Patrol work in the Indian Ocean continued for the remainder of 1939 before the cruiser was ordered to return to Sydney for docking and Christmas leave. Workups followed early in the new year and on completion Sydney returned to WA where she arrived in the 8th of February 1940. For the next few months she continued the familiar pattern of patrol and escort work that stretched from Bunbury in the south to Carnarvon in the north. She also conducted patrols deep into the Indian Ocean. Throughout that time she became a familiar sight for the residents of Fremantle and Perth who with many of their own kith and kin serving in her had all but adopted the ship as their own. On the 1st of May, Sydney was returning to Fremantle from escort duties when she received orders to proceed to Colombo at best speed. These orders were the instrument that would see Sydney leave the Australian station and later win fame in the Mediterranean Sea. Taking passage via Singapore to refuel, Sydney arrived in Colombo on the 8th of May. Her time there was short-lived and soon she was directed to proceed to Egypt where she joined the Royal Navy Mediterranean Fleet on the 26th of May. In early June 1940, Sydney participated in a series of exercises as part of the 7th Cruiser Squadron and it did not take her long to establish a reputation as an efficient and happy ship. On the 10th of June, with France about to fall and with Britain's future looking precarious, Italy entered the war on the side of Germany. It was now clear to the men of Sydney that the balance of power in the Mediterranean could easily shift and that the struggle for control of the sea there was about to begin in earnest. Within hours of Italy's war declaration, the British fleet, under the commander of Admiral Sir Andrew Cunningham, sailed on its first patrol sweep in the early hours of the 11th of June. Hostilities commenced almost immediately and first blood was drawn that night at 23.30 hours when the destroyer HMS Decoy reported sighting a submarine on the surface which she attacked. At dawn the next morning an oil slick two miles long was detected although it was not known whether the submarine was destroyed or not. The enemy also struck quickly when on the 12th of June the cruiser HMS Calypso was torpedoed by a submarine off Crete and sank with the loss of one officer and 38 ratings. The fleet completed its patrol sweep and returned to Alexandria, I think it's Alexandria, it's in Egypt, that's it, um, Alexandria, two days later, where it was forced to make cautious entry due to the presence of minefields which had been laid by enemy submarines off the harbour entrance. The war in the Mediterranean had erupted swiftly and for the young Australian sailors on Sydney it was a sobering introduction to the war at sea in the Northern Hemisphere. On the 22nd of June, France signed an armistice with Germany, the terms of which called for French naval units deployed abroad to return to France where they will be demobilised under the supervision of the Axis forces. As feared, the balance of sea power had indeed shifted and the British government resolved that under no circumstances should the French fleet be permitted to fall into the hands of the enemy. It was though a matter which was eventually settled by extreme measures on one hand and considered diplomacy on the other. In the western Mediterranean, the majority of the French fleet was in the port at Oran. There the French admiral in command was given an ultimatum. He could order his ships to sail to Britain or to the US where they would be in turn demilitarised and then left in situ or face annihilation by the units of the Royal Navy. 
Tragically, with no positive response forthcoming, the majority of the fleet was neutralised with force. In Egypt, where Sydney was birthed, the situation was similarly tense, with many French naval units present in the harbour and now under the guns of the Commonwealth warships. There, Admiral Cunningham insisted on negotiating with his French counterpart, Vice Admiral Godfrey, who up until the signing of the armistice had been operating alongside the Allied warships. Through his diplomacy, tragedy was averted when Godfrey agreed to demilitarise his ships, keep them in port and reduce their crew to 30%. It was then with great relief that Sydney's menacing guns were trained back to the more benign fore and aft position. Throughout June, Sydney participated in numerous patrols and also took part in a major shore bombardment of Bardia later in the month. During this bombardment, Sydney's amphibian Seagull aircraft was launched to assist in coordinating the cruiser's fire. The combined RAAF RAN aircrew who manned the aircraft had no sooner begun their task when they were set upon by fighters which seemed intent on shooting them down. They put up a spirited defence of the lumbering amphibian before the aggressors broke off their attack, leaving the seagull full of holes and barely airworthy. Her pilot was Flight Lieutenant T.M. Price, RAAF, forced landed at a British airfield some miles away, but the plane was so badly damaged it was actually written off. Price was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his courageous performance and credited the crew's survival to the slow speed of the aircraft. On the 28th of June, Sydney was involved in the pursuit of three enemy destroyers detected by aerial reconnaissance which were engaged at long range. One of them, the Espero, was crippled by Sydney and Collins was ordered to finish her off and pick up any survivors. As he approached the stricken Italian vessel, it opened fire with guns and torpedoes in a last brave act of defiance, and Sydney's response was swift and final, with a six-inch gun soon reducing the destroyer to a burning wreck. The Espero then heeled over and sank. Captain Collins then immediately ordered his boats away, and the next two hours were spent rescuing survivors in the gathering darkness. When it became too dangerous for Sydney to remain in the area any longer, Collins instructed that one of his boats was to be fully provisioned and left behind to ensure that any survivors they had missed were given a sporting chance of survival. Those recovered by Sydney's crew were well cared for to the extent that when it came time for them to disembark in Egypt, many requested they remain on board at Sydney's prisoners rather than go to a prisoner of war camp. On the 30th of June, the 7th Cruiser Squadron came under several aerial attacks from Italian bombers during its return passage. This was to be the first of many that Sydney would emerge from unscathed, and in the weeks that followed she earned the reputation as a lucky ship. Later in July, during a particularly violent attack, Admiral Cunningham observed that Sydney completely disappeared in a line of towering pillars of Sprayer's highest church steeples. When she emerged, he said, I signalled, are you all right? To which came the rather dubious reply from that stout-hearted Australian Captain J.A. Collins, I hope so. The fleet next sailed from Egypt late in the evening of the 7th of July and the following day came under intense air attack from the Italian Air Force. During one of these raids, rather, the cruiser HMS Gloucester was hit by a bomb that killed her captain and 17 others. Later that evening, a reconnaissance aircraft reported sighting two enemy battleships steering south about 100 miles northwest of Benghazi. These capital ships were supported by six cruisers and seven destroyers and were later observed to alter course to the north. 
Cunningham immediately determined to manoeuvre his force between the enemy fleet and their base at Taranto to try and cut them off and bring them into action. The following day, planes from the aircraft carrier HMS Eagle relocated the Italian ships and Cunningham's fleet closed them rapidly. At approximately 1,500 hours, HMS Neptune, part of the vanguard of cruisers which included Sydney, reported sighting four Italian cruisers and shortly afterwards the entire enemy fleet came into view, consisting of two battleships, 12 cruisers and numerous destroyers. The vanguard, greatly outnumbered, quickly found itself in action when the Italian heavy cruisers opened fire at them at 15.14 hours. Cunningham, who was on HMS Warspite, soon came to the assistance of the beleaguered cruisers and the battleship's fire forced the enemy to retire under the cover of smoke, after which there was a lull in the action. By then, the battleships HMS Malaya and Royal Sovereign were approaching the scene of action, as were the British destroyers which were concentrating for an attack. Shortly before 1,600 hours, at a range of roughly 13 miles, Warspite opened fire on the two enemy battleships and succeeded in straddling them. Moments later, the Italian flagship Giulio Cesar was hit by a 15-inch shell from Warspite, causing the Italians to turn away under a dense screen of smoke. Meanwhile, the Allied cruisers had rejoined the action and were attempting to close the enemy destroyers. By 1640 hours, however, the engagement was all but over, and while it did not culminate in the much-anticipated full-scale fleet action, Sydney had again been in the thick of it and survived unscathed with no casualties. Only a few of her signal was shot away. During the action, she expended over 400 rounds of her 6-inch ammunition, and by the time she returned back to port, she'd expended her entire outfit of 4-inch anti-aircraft ammunition, beating off the air attacks. These attacks came as the battle fleet chased the Italians to within 25 miles of the coast of Calibria before breaking off the pursuit and altering course for a position south of Malta. The fleet continued to be harassed from the air as it made its way back to Alexandria where it arrived on the 13th of July. There Sydney docked briefly for hull maintenance and to take on ammunition before her next patrol. Meanwhile, back in Australia, Sydney's exploits in the Mediterranean would f- were followed by fervour and within weeks she was to make headlines that would see her become a household name. On the 18th of July, Sydney sailed from Egypt in company with the destroyer HMS Havoc, bound for the Gulf of Athens. Together, they had orders to support Commander H. St. L. Nichols' destroyer flotilla, consisting of HMS Hyperion, Hero, Hasty and Ilex in the Aegean Sea. Nicholson was to intercept any Italian shipping attempting passage to or from the Dodonacasi and carry out any anti-submarine sweep from east to west along the north coast of the island of Crete. Collins, realising that Nicholson's westward sweep might expose him to enemy attack in the restricted waters of the Aegean, adjusted his course and speed so that he was better placed to provide support if required. In these pre-radar days, dawn was often the most dangerous time of day and on the 19th of July this was to prove to be the case when Nicholson at the western end of his sweep sighted two enemy uh, Condoretti-class cruisers which soon opened fire on his destroyers. With little choice other than turn and run and not knowing that Sydney and Havoc were closing his position, Nicholson made an enemy contract report and began a speedy retiring action towards what he believed to be a far distant Sydney. Collins, though hundreds of miles closer than anyone realised, prepared his ship for action and maintained strict communication silence so as not to alert the enemy to his presence. 
At 8.20am, the two Italian cruisers were sighted and eight minutes later, the tension mounting, Sydney hoisted her battle ensigns and opened fire at a range of approximately 10 miles. Both the enemy and the fleeing British destroyers were taken by surprise at the sudden appearance of HMAS Sydney and before long, hits were registered on one of the aircraft uh, and one of the enemy cruisers, rather, the Giovanni della Bande Nero. By then, Nicholson's destroyers were in wireless contact with Sydney and the two groups joined forces south of Cape Sparta. Sydney had scored hits on both enemy cruisers and it became apparent to Collins that they were attempting to retreat towards the channel under a cover of smoke. The enemy gunfire became sporadic at that point of the action and one of the cruisers, later identified as the Bartolomeo Collini, was seen to be on fire, losing headway before coming to a complete stop. Two of Nicholson's destroyers, Hyperion and Ilex, were subsequently ordered to finish her off and pick up survivors. They were later relieved by Havoc, which remained in the area until she came under the threat of an enemy aircraft, and in some 550 Italians, including her captain, were rescued by the destroyers. Meanwhile, Collins continued to chase the remaining cruiser, the Giovanni del Bande Nero, and at 10.25, by which time Sydney was low on ammo and coming within range of Italian bomber aircraft, he broke the pursuit off. During the action, Sydney sustained just one hit to her forward funnel, which caused only minor damage and no serious casualties. Intent on retribution, the Italian Air Force was soon on the scene and doing its best to sink the Sydney, which continued to lead a charmed life, escaping several very near misses. These attacks prevailed throughout the afternoon, and Havoc, now bound for Egypt, was damaged in one of them, although not seriously, and at 11am, on the 20th of July, Sydney entered the harbour with the Australian national flag f- flying proudly from her foremast to the rousing cheers of the men of the Mediterranean fleet. The Commander-in-Chief, Admiral Cunningham, boarded Sydney from his barge to personally congratulate Captain Collins and his crew. He was to recall in his memoirs, for this fine, brisk action which showed the high efficiency and magnificent fighting qualities of the Royal Australian Navy, Captain Collins was immediately awarded the ca- Companion of the Bath by His Majesty, a well-deserved honour. Here is His report to the Admiralty concerning the action was similarly flattering, recording the credit for this successful and gallant action belongs mainly to Captain Collins, who by his quick appreciation of the situation, offensive spirit and resolute handling of HMAS Sydney achieved a victory over a superior force which has had important strategical effects. It is significant that, so far as is known, no Italian surface forces have returned into or near the Aegean since this action was fought. Throughout Australia, news of Sydney's victory dominated the newspaper. The Melbourne Herald on the 20th of July 1940 reported in its evening edition that once again the Australian Navy has shown the splendid fighting quality and efficiency of the last war. Sydney outfought and destroyed the famous Emden and now a younger sister writes another page of naval history that will thrill the civilised world. And thrill it she did. Newspapers in London and New York enthusiastically acknowledged Sydney's victory over the two superior Italian cruisers while the Sydney Morning Herald announced that flags will be flown on all government buildings throughout New South Wales today in in honour of a great naval exploit. With this victory, Sydney's aura of invincibility became cemented in the minds of the Australian people. On the other side of the world, she'd survived intense air attacks, taken, to the, taken on the might of the Italian Navy and snatched a divisive and decisive victory through a combination of initiative and bravado in the face of overwhelming odds. 
Her exploits were now becoming legendary. Almost every Australian community had one of its own serving in the cruiser, and as she continued to add to her already impressive war record, so their pride in the ship, which Admiral Cunningham had dubbed a stormy petrel, continued to grow. Throughout the remainder of 1940, Sydney participated in further patrols, anti-submarine sweeps, convoy escort duties and shore bombardments in the Mediterranean and the Adriatic Seas. In January 1941, she received orders recalling her to Australia and she departed departed the harbour at Egypt. She received many farewell signals from the ships she had fought alongside throughout 1940. Admiral Cunningham expressed his deep personal regret over her departure, but also conveyed his hope that your countrymen will give you the reception you deserve. During Sydney's passage home, she passed through the Suez Canal and escorted several small convoys through the Red Sea before entering the Indian Ocean. There she conducted a sweep past Mogadishu, Somalia, looking for Italian vessels before proceeding independently to Fremantle, where she arrived on the 5th of February to be greeted by a large contingent of the media. Photographers and well-wishers adorned the pier. Disappointingly, though, for those on board, the visit was short-lived as she sailed the same afternoon for Sydney, having taken on stores and fresh provisions, as well as embarking a small group of reporters and their cameramen. Sydney arrived in a namesake harbour shortly before midnight on Sunday the 9th of February 1941, anchoring at Watson's Bay. The following morning she weighed anchor and slowly made her way down the harbour towards her assigned berth at Circular Quay, amongst an escort of scores of motor launches carrying excited relatives and friends. Admiral Cunningham's hope that the men of Sydney would get the reception they deserved was certainly fulfilled, for when the cruiser arrived at the quay she was met by a huge crowd of people who had come to greet her. Many VIPs had also assembled to welcome Sydney home, including the Governor-General, Lord Gowie, the Minister for the Navy, Billy Hughes, and the first Naval member, Sir Ragnall Colvin. Following an address from the then... Following, rather, an addresses from the crew of Sydney went ashore where they were embraced by their friends and family. News of Sydney's arrival home dominated the newspapers, which covered her return in great detail over the next three days, making much of her triumph return home. On Tuesday 11th of February, the Premier of New South Wales, Mr Mayor, and the City of of Sydney Lord Mayor, Alderman Crick, came on board the cruiser to present a plaque to the ship commemorating her victory over the Bartolomeu Collini on behalf of the citizens of Sydney. The plaque consisted of two large cast medallions mounted on oak and was affixed to the gun housing Y turret below the sighting ports. With the unveiling of the plaque completed, the crew was fallen in on the quayside behind Sydney's band and they then marched through the streets of Sydney to a civic reception which had been arranged for them at the town hall. Thousands of people turned out to watch the men parade through the city and children were given the day off school so that they too could enjoy the celebration. At the town hall each member of Sydney's crew was presented with a smaller medallion of the same design as that awarded to the ship all of whom were individually inscribed with the recipient's personal details. For many of those who were present, it was a day never to be forgotten. The Victoria Sydney had come home at a time when the threat to Australian shipping in both the Pacific and Indian Oceans was increasing. Evidence that German raiders had been active around the Australian coastline was also mounting. Indeed, Bass Strait and the entrance to Port Phillip Bay had both been mined by raiders and the pressure had been brought to bear on the government to bring the RAN's big ship home to deal with the mounting threat. 
So Sydney's return was both timely and symbolic. The government, government rather, had not only heeded the call, but had brought home the battle-hardened Sydney. In the eyes of the Australian public, all would now be well now that Sydney was home. None would have believed that unless the year should be gone, taking all those on board with her. With the excitement surrounding Sydney's return abating and with censorship reapplied to her movements, the Navy turned its attention towards more practical matters, sending Sydney into dry dock for maintenance while her crew was sent on leave. On the 28th of February, with her docking completed, the cruiser sailed from Sydney for Fremantle where she began a period of routine convoy escort duties operating off the West Australian coast. In April, she returned to the eastern seaboard, escorting the troop ship Queen Mary to Jarvis Bay before undertaking a high-speed passage via Fremantle to Singapore to carry the first naval member to a high-level Allied conference. While in Singapore, it was decided that Captain Collins would be appointed the Australian Naval Representative to the Commander-in-Chief of China, who was based in Singapore, Vice Admiral Sir Geoffrey Layton. And so it was that in Fremantle on the 15th of May 1941, Collioni John, as he'd been nicknamed by his crew, handed over commander, a command rather, of Sydney to Captain Joseph Burnett, RAN. In later years, following a long distinguished career in the Navy, Collins reflected, To me there has never been before, nor will there ever be again, a ship quite to compare with the cruiser Sydney of World War II. Like Collins, Joseph Burnett had entered the Royal Australian Naval College as one of the original entry cadets in 1913. He was rated cadet captain in 1914 and went on to specialise in gunnery. He served on HMAS Australia during World War I and a number of Royal Navy vessels between the wars, which included service aboard, abroad rather during the Spanish Civil War. He was promoted to captain in 1938 and he was serving in England when war broke out and returned home late in 1939 to take up the appointment of the Assistant Chief of Naval Staff. Burnett took to his new command for sea for the first time between the 17th and the 21st of May to conduct routine patrols and exercises in the Indian Ocean. On the 26th of May, Sydney relieved HMAS Hobart as the escort for the troop ship Zealander, which was making her easterly passage from Melbourne to Singapore via Fremantle. After a short stopover at Fremantle, the two vessels continued their voyage on the 31st of May and arrived in the vicinity of the Sundra Strait on the 6th of June. There, Sydney was relieved by HMS, HMS rather, Denae before returning independently to Fremantle where she arrived four days later. Zealander was to become a familiar sight to the men of Sydney as her next assignment was to provide escort for the troop ship during her return passage from the Sundra Strait to Fremantle later on in the month. On the 24th of June, Zealander was again under Sydney's watchful eye as part of a small convoy designated FS1, taking passage across the Great Australian Bight bound for Melbourne and Sydney respectively. A change in scenery came in July when Captain Burnett and his crew escorted the Berwickshire and the Glen Effer to New Zealand before conducting a resupply run to Numea. She returned to Sydney on the 25th of July to escort convoy US-11B to Melbourne after an inter intermediate docking in early August she was again crossing the Tasman Sea bound for Auckland New Zealand as an escort for the Awaitia Awaitia I think that's how you pronounce it following a three-day stopover the two vessels sailed on the 14th of August for Suva where they arrived a few days later Sydney returned home independently on the 28th of August having escorted the Awaitia beyond Samoa meanwhile in the far distant Indian Ocean there'd been a number of disturbing developments 
Reports of wireless and sporadic wireless signals coupled with the unexplained disappearance of several merchant ships had raised concerns that there might be a radar at large. This was indeed the case. The German Navy's largest auxiliary cruiser, the Cormoran, now disguised as the Dutch merchant ship MV Strut Malacca, had entered the Indian Ocean some months previously and was making her presence felt throughout the region. Adept at subterfuge with a well-drilled, disciplined crew, she was more than a match for any unsuspecting merchant ship. Her captain, uh, Theodore Anton Detmers, however, had no desire to encounter a warship from which he termed Australia's grey funnel line. On the 4th of September, Sydney sailed from Port Jackson in company with the large troop ship Queen Mary. Picking up the Queen Elizabeth en route, the three vessels later rendezvoused with HMAS Canberra, which assumed responsibility for their safe passage to Fremantle. Sydney then called in at Melbourne to refuel and make good some minor defects. Her next voyage escorting convoy US-12B to Fremantle would see Sydney leave the eastern seaboard for the last time. Never again would she sail through Sydney Heads, never again would she pass would she pass the mast of her forebear, and never again would she be fated by the citizens of the city whose name she carried with pride. She shepherded her convoy west, her date with destiny was fast approaching as the Cormoran slowly made her way east towards the West Australian coast. HMAS Sydney arrived in Fremantle on the 25th of September and three days later continued on with US-12B on the now familiar route to the Sundra Strait where she was relieved by HMAS Glasgow. Many of Sydney's crew viewed this work as being a milk run in comparison to the high-tempo operations of the Mediterranean, yet there were subtle signs starting to appear, leading some to believe that things were not as benign as what they appeared. One of these signs came on the evening on the 3rd of October when Sydney sighted an object floating on the sea, which one on investigation appeared to be a large gunnery target. The wooden structure was recovered by one of Sydney's boats and hoisted on board where it was examined and dismantled. Captain Burnett reported the discovery to Naval Headquarters in Melbourne, stating that it was difficult to find an explanation of this large structure which which fitted all the facts. He went on to express that there just is a possibility that it may have been dropped by a radar. Days later, an unidentified vessel was sighted by HMAS Yandra, eight miles from Rottnest Island, in the early morning of the 6th of October. The vessel melted into the darkness and in spite of an air search, no trace of it was found. Speculation concerning the identity of the vessel became the subject of considerable attention in the Combined Operations Intelligence Centre over the next few days, which again raised the possibility that a radar may have been operating in the area. As a precaution, minesweepers were ordered to operate ahead of Queen Mary and Sydney, both of which were due to arrive in Fremantle, while anti-submarine patrols were maintained during daylight hours. Over the next few weeks, Sydney conducted exercises off the West Australian coastline and conducted short visits to Geraldton and Bunbury. Throughout 1941, Sydney had become a familiar sight in West Australian waters with each visit the bonds between the cruiser and the citizens of West Australia further strengthened. On the 1st of November, Sydney sailed from Fremantle to again rendezvous with the Zealandia, which was on passage from Melbourne with HMAS Adelaide as her escort. Sydney relieved Adelaide off King George Sound in Albany before escorting the troop ship to Fremantle where they arrived on the 9th of, uh, 9th of November. Two days later, Sydney sailed with Zealandia on the fa- familiar milk run to the Sunda Strait, signalling shore authorities before she sailed that she would return to port on the PM of Thursday the 20th of November. 
Sydney's passage to the Sundra Strait was without incident and at noon on the 17th of November she rendezvoused with HMS Durban which assumed responsibility for escorting Zealandia on to Singapore. Relieved of her escort duty, Sydney reversed course and resumed the now well-worn navigational track that would take her back to Fremantle. As she disappeared over the horizon, none of those watching in Zealander or Durban's or Durban suspected that they would be among the last to see her and it would be a further 66 years before friendly eyes were once more gazed upon the pride of the Royal Australian Navy. Sydney sailed from Fremantle on Armistice Day on the 11th of November 1941 to to escort the troop ship Zealandia to Sundra Strait where she was to be relieved by the British cruiser HMAS Durban for the last leg of that voyage to Singapore. The voyage went without incident and at noon on the 17th of November she was turned over to Durban and Sydney then proceeded back to Fremantle where she was expected to arrive on the afternoon of the 20th of November. She did not arrive as expected and the District Naval Officer in Western Australia reported accordingly to the Naval Board at 11am the following day that Sydney was overdue. This did not immediately concern the Naval Board as they'd been advised that Zealandia had arrived later than anticipated and it was assumed that Sydney too had been delayed. There was also the possibility that she might have been diverted for another purpose and a not broken radio, which is wireless telegraphy, silence. When, however, she had not returned by the 23rd of November, she was instructed by the Naval Board to report by signal there was no reply. The reconstruction of events leading up to Sydney's disappearance relies primarily on information gathered from interrogations of German survivors from the raider HSK Cormoran, which Sydney engaged in on the afternoon of 19th of November 1941. The following is an account of Sydney's final action and subsequent loss based on surviving records, extensive research and the findings of a Chief of Defence Force inquiry concerning the loss of the Sydney released in July 2009. Times reflected in the narrative are in Greenwich time zone and as are recorded by the Germans. Returning from her convoy duties in Java, Sydney was proceeding south along the northwest coast of West Australia when she sighted what appeared to be a merchant vessel at about 1,600 hours on the 19th of November 1941, some 130 miles west of Shark Bay. The ship was in fact the Cormoran. Sydney challenged the vessel continuously using her searchlight while at the same time closing the range between the two ships. Merchant vessels were known to be less efficient at visual signalling and the Germans exploited this knowledge through their actions on their flag deck and by their slow response to Sydney's visual challenges. At 1,700 hours to further the deception, Cormoran broadcast a suspicious ship message feigning a cry for help in the name of the Strut Malacca. Sydney's efforts to establish the true identity of the vessel resulted in closing the range to a point where she no longer had the advantage of her superior armament. At approximately 17.15 hours, Sydney had drawn almost a beam of Cormoran to starboard less than a mile distant. Both ships were steering west-southwest at about 15 knots. Still wary, the Australian cruiser kept her main armament trained on the mysterious ship and her amphibious aircraft was on the catapult with its engine running. She then signalled both by flags and flashing light, we're bound. Cormoran replied, Batavia. The crucial moment then came when Sydney hoisted a two-flag signal consisting of the letters IK, which the raider could not interpret. They were in fact the two centre letters of the Strat Malacca's four-letter secret identification signal. With no reply forthcoming, Sydney signalled the plain language, show your secret sign. 
Finally, when concealment of his vessel's true identity was no longer possible, and with the advantage of surprise, Dietmers ordered the Dutch colours to be struck. He hoisted the German naval ensign and opened fire at approximately 17.30 with all armament at a range somewhat more than a mile. It is likely that the raider's first salvo destroyed Sydney's bridge, with the result that her primary control was immediately put out of action. Sydney's own guns opened fire almost simultaneously with a full salvo that passed over Cormoran without inflicting damage. Cormoran again scored hits on Sydney with two salvos again hitting her bridge and the midship section. According to the, German, all, to the Germans, all of Cormoran's armament had brought to bear on Sydney concentrating on her bridge, torpedo tubes and anti-aircraft batteries. For a few seconds after her initial salvo, Sydney did not reply. It appears that her forward A and B turrets were put out of action, leaving only her after turrets X and Y to respond. It was reported by the Germans that Sydney's X turret opened fast and accurate fire, hitting Cormoran in the funnel and engine room. Y turret is said to have only fired two or three salvos, all of, went, all of which went over. At about this time, one of the raiders' two torpedoes struck Sydney under A and B turrets. The other passed close ahead of the stricken ship was, was subjected to fire. With her bow low in the water, Sydney then turned sharply to Encormoran, a lower attempting to ram. As she did so, the top of B turret was blown off and flew overboard. The cruiser then passed under Cormoran's stern, heading to the southward and losing way. Cormoran then maintaining her course and speed was now on fire in the engine room where hits by Sydney's X turret had caused severe damage. Smoke from the fire hid Sydney from Cormoran's bridge, but the raider continued to engage with her afterguns as the range opened to approximately 4,400 yards. At about 17.45, Sydney was sent to, seen to fire a torpedo when Detmers was turning his ship to port to bring his broadside to bear. However, as he did so, Cormoran's engines began to fail. The torpedo track was sighted and it was subsequently avoided. Simultaneously, the raider's engines broke down completely. HMAS Sydney, now crippled and on fire from the bridge to the aft funnel, steamed slowly to the south, returning only sporadic fire from her secondary armament. Although by now the range had opened up to 6,600 yards, Sydney can continued to receive steady hits from Cormoran's port broadside. At 1,800 hours, at a range of 7,700 yards, Cormoran then fired one torpedo that missed Sydney's stern. Although this fierce action had lasted only half an hour, both ships had been dealt mortal blows. Cormoran fired her last shot at 18.25 hours at a range of about 11,000 yards. The German claimed to have fired approximately 450 rounds from her main armament and hundreds from her anti-aircraft batteries. With the gathering gloom, the former Sydney disappeared from view and was last seen by the Germans about 10 miles off, heading approximately south-southeast. Thereafter, until about 2,200 hours, all that was seen was a distant glare, then the occasional flickerings until around midnight, which all time and trace of Sydney disappeared. Of Sydney's total complement of 42 officers and 603 ratings, none survived. This number included six members of the Royal Australian Air Force, four civilian canteen staff. The only material evidence recovered from Sydney was an Australian naval-type Carly life float recovered eight days after the action by HMAS Heroes and an Australian naval pattern life belt recovered by HMAS Wairala. I think it's Wairala? Yeah, Wairala. The Carly float is now preserved in the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, which I have seen.
The order to abandon Cormoran was given by Dietmers between 20 and 2100 hours and all accessible life-saving equipment in the fire-free portion of the ship was put overboard. At this period, some 380 officers and men remained alive. Almost all of the officers and enough ratings to man the guns waited on board while the final scuttling arrangements were made. Remaining life-saving equipment consisted of two steel boats located forward in number two hold. However, damage to the ship delayed the launching of these. At midnight, with smoke increasingly heavy on the mining deck, the scuttling charge was fired and the last boat cast off. Half an hour later, at 0.35 hours, the mines carried by Cormoran exploded and she sank rapidly stern first. During the first abandonment, a large rubber boat sank without warning, throwing 60 men into the sea who drowned. At 1700 hours West Australian time, on the 24th of November 1941, the British tanker Trocas bound Palembang for Fremantle reported by wireless that the rescue of 25 German seamen from a raft sighted some 115 miles west-northwest of Carnarvon. This was the first positive evidence of a possible naval engagement involving the overdue Sydney. Naval authorities immediately dispatched four Royal Australian Navy auxiliary craft with armed guards on board to rendezvous with the Trocas. At the time of receipt of the signal from the Trocas, all air searches seeking Sydney were already in progress. Now, unbeknownst to the naval authorities, the transport ship Aquitania had also sighted a raft and rescued 26 Germans the previous day, which was the 23rd of November. Maintaining wireless silence, her command passed on no information of this until the 27th of November when she informed the signal station at Wilson's Promontory of her discovery. The air searchers produced their first result early in the morning of the 25th of November at 1700 hours. A lifeboat sighted northwest of Carnarvon. Further sightings during the day revealed up to five boats in the area at that time. Eventually two boats, those commanded by Lieutenant Commander Henry Meyer and Chief Petty Officer Paul Cohn, came ashore unaided some 50 and 70 miles north of Carnarvon respectively. Organised land parties were dispatched and apprehended these groups during the afternoon of their landing. The steamer Kalinda picked up a third boat centre, one containing Detmers and HMAS Yandra 1. Based on records made at the time, the total number of Cormoran survivors rescued were as followed. The Trocas had 25 men, the Aquitania got 26 men, the Centaur 60 men, the Kalinda 31 men and the Yandra had 72 plus 57 plus 46. There was a total of 317 men including two Chinese. Loss of HMAS Sydney on the vote November, well rather in November 1941, with all hands, came as a tremendous blow to the Royal Australian Navy and to the Australia, entire Australian community during a particularly dark period of World War II. Her achievements and proud fighting record had perpetuated in the warships named Sydney that had followed her and on memorials and cenotaphs throughout Australia. During the many years that followed Sydney's loss, conjecture and debate surrounding her fate intensified rather than abated. Public interest was such that on the 26th of August 1997, the Australian Government requested the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade to investigate and report on the circumstances surrounding the sinking. In March 1999, the committee published its report with, when, with one of the primary recommendations being that the Royal Australian Navy 
sponsor a seminar aimed at establishing the likely area of the battle and hence the location of the wrecks of the Sydney and the Cormoran. The Sea Power Centre Australia subsequently convened a wreck location seminar in Fremantle on the 16th of November 2001. Regrettably, the aim was not achieved as the seminar served primarily to highlight the main the many differing and main theories on where the wrecks might lie. Here the matter might have rested were it not for a volunteer group known as the Finding Sydney Foundation. They were intent on conducting an in-water search for Sydney and Cormoran and they established their credentials and ultimately with the Australian Government as well. Confidence in the Foundation was further inspired through its uh, alliance with notable shipwreck investigators David Mearns, who had, who had a successful record on locating deep water shipwrecks, including that of the famous Royal Navy battlecruiser HMS Hood. This alliance aided the FSF's objectives considerably, and in August 2005, the Foundation obtained partial funding for a search from the Federal Government. Other sizable donations were obtained by the state governments of Western Australia and New South Wales and from members of the general public. The proposed scope of the search still exceeded the available funds, but after further lobbying, an additional commitment by the federal government in August 2007 brought the total funds up to $4.2 million. So with sufficient funding in place, detailed planning for the in-water search could begin in earnest with early 2008 set as the objective. David Mearns was confirmed as the search director with the Norwegian company DOF Subsea securing the contract for the search vessel, the SV Geosounder. The vital deep water side scan sonar equipment needed to find the wrecks was provided by the 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 American firm Williamson & Associates. The search team mobilised from Geraldton in Western Australia in February 2008 and sailed in early March to begin searching an area of seabed equivalent to the size of the Australian Capital Territory. The first objective was to locate the Cormoran, which could then be used as a reference point to find Sydney. Despite many setbacks caused by equipment malfunction and the influence of a tropical cyclone, the defined search box proved accurate and wreck of Cormoran was identified on the 12th of March. This discovery enabled David Mearns to further refine his search box and four days later, at 11.03 on Sunday the 16th of March, the wreck of the Sydney was found at a depth of roughly 2,500 metres. News of the discovery was quickly communicated ashore and an official announcement was made by the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd on Monday the 17th of March. What has been described as Australia's most enduring maritime mystery had been solved. With the location of both wrecks identified, the search vessel Geosounder returned to Geraldton where the search team began mobilising for phase two of the search, which was obtaining imagery of Sydney and Cormoran losing, using rather remote operated vehicles, the ROVs. Geosounder was fortunately equipped with suitable vehicle, which was soon being prepared for this crucial part of the expedition. And on the 28th of March, the Geosounder sailed again from Geraldton and returned to the wreck sites. Both wrecks were now protected under the provisions of the Historic Shipwrecks Acts of 1976 and as such permission had first been sought before the Geosounder could re-enter the area. Again, the expedition was dogged with bad weather and further technical difficulties which had to be resolved at sea with the only expertise available on board. These setbacks were eventually overcome and the ROV obtained its first images of Sydney at 15.10 hours on the 3rd of April when its powerful underwater lighting illuminated one of the cruiser's 
uh, 6-inch gun turrets. The wreck was upright and the ROV was manoeuvred along Sydney's port side. It became clear that in spite of obvious battle damage, she was in great, if not remarkably, well-preserved state with little marine growth. That extreme depth and darkness of which Sydney lies in will be and will continue to be her greatest protector. The FSF's objective to locate both wrecks was achieved. More importantly, the crews of both ships were commemorated by the search team with a short service being conducted over the site of both the Cormorant and Sydney. The data and imagery con- collected by the group was forwarded to a commission of inquiry into the loss of HMAS Sydney, presided over by the Honourable Terence Cole. The commission was appointed by the Chief of Defence Force to investigate and report the circumstances surrounding the loss of the Sydney and the consequence and loss of life. Special commemorative services were also held around Australia on the 19th of November 2008 to mark the 67th anniversary of her loss. So the shipwrecks of HMAS Sydney and HSK Cormoran and Associated Debris Fields are located 22 kilometres apart. 290 kilometres west-southwest of Carnarvon off the coast of Western Australia in 2,500 metres of water. HMAS Sydney sank after a battle with the German raider Cormoran off the West Australian coast on the 19th of November 1941. HMAS Sydney was Australia's most famous warship at the time and this battle has forever linked the stories of these warships to each other. The Sydney and the Cormoran were added to the National Heritage List on the 14th of March 2011. Removing tribute to the sailors who lost, lost their lives aboard the HMAS Sydney during World War II, visit Geraldton's HMAS Sydney Memorial. It's steeped in symbolism. The memorial pays homage to the ship's 645 men who lost their lives off the West Australian coastline during that battle with the Cormoran. The memorial's symbolic elements include the Wall of Remembrance, which bears the names of the 645 men who lost their lives, as well as the history of the ship. The Sanctuary, which is the centrepiece of the memorial, which sits on seven pillars to represent the states and territories of Australia. The silver dome of the Sanctuary is made up of 645 seagulls representing those lost, and the ship's propeller sits in the centre of the Sanctuary's circular floor. The propeller also serves as a ceremonial wreath-laying altar. The stell represents the bow of the Sydney, the waiting woman sculpture facing towards the sea, longingly awaiting the return of her loved one. And incidentally, the waiting woman has actually now been moved to, to actually take on the coordinates of where both ships uh, lay at, at rest. And the pool of remembrance, which water symbolically flows down the circular terracing at the floor of the pool, lies a map which shows the location of the Sydney's final resting place. There are volunteer tour guides that run a really moving tour through the memorial every day except Christmas Day as well. And after the long-awaited discovery of the wreck in 2008 off the seabed of Shark Bay, a visit to the memorial is now even more poignant. You can follow with a visit to the Museum of Geraldton where you can learn more about the discovery of the wreck. And Geraldton, approximately four and a half hours drive north of Perth or a one-hour flight with Qantas, and you can discover more about what you can do around the area. But this week it was a tribute mainly to HMAS Sydney and the 645 men that went down with her in 1941. That's it for this week's edition of The Road Less Travelled. I hope you've enjoyed it, giving you some perspective of something a little bit different, but certainly very moving and very poignant, lest we forget. Thanks for listening. This has been The Road Less Travelled, a podcast about travelling and camping on the road. Written and hosted by me, Nikki Shea, produced by Fat Cat Media. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, please leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email fatcat at iinet.net.au and to be notified on the new episodes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. We'll be back with a new episode next week.